A few weeks ago, I caught up on Zoom with Dr. Neda Mumtaz, Assistant Professor in Religion and Near and Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Toronto. It was only fitting that we talked as Neda was home visiting her family in Beirut. Because for the past many years, Neda has been hard at work getting to the bottom of a prominent and curious feature of Beirut's urban and social landscape. The idea of waqf, an Arabic word that's usually translated by scholars as Islamic endowment. What I learned through our conversation, though, is that that translation is woefully inadequate. The waqf is a form of charitable giving and property holding that has deep roots in the Islamic tradition. But Netta's research shows that it was also central to defining the state, the family, and the city of Beirut between the late 19th century and the present day. She also suggests that the waqf might have something to teach us about how to think expansively about questions of public and private charity and redistribution, and the meaning of the phrase, the public good, what that means, who pays for it, and who it serves. So I should admit right off the bat that I thought about starting this conversation by asking you, what is a walk? (laughs) Um, because this is a word that shows up a lot in history books about the Middle East, but doesn't often get fully sort of translated or defined. But I quickly realized that asking you this question would be basically asking you to recapitulate your entire book. So I thought we might better start with a different question, um, sort of to set the scene. So I'm curious if we were to join you today, Neda, on a walking tour of Beirut, um, Lebanon, where you currently are and where your research was based, how would we encounter the waqf in contemporary Beirut? Say right now, it just uh, the sun just set and the event had just come. And the mosque is the most perhaps obvious example of a waqf. And it's all over the city and churches as well uh, are also formed as, as waqf. There's a very obvious one, cemeteries as well. There's also uh, walks that you might not necessarily, uh, that don't look like what you would imagine a walk is. And these are, for example, any a building, like in the city, Beirut city center, there's a building that has this very famous chocolatier in Beirut called Pachi. And so they have a building in the city center and the Pachi building itself is a walk. A very famous example, people might tell you that the ABC Mall, which is an enormous mall in Ashrafiye, is actually a waqf built on the Greek Orthodox uh, waqf. Today you also find waqfs that I was surprised to see, I will admit, when I started seeing them. So uh, one I encountered uh, at first as a sign on a building and on a street I pass by quite a bit close by where I live. And it says, waqf nahr al which is the waqf of the river of sciences. And I discovered later that this is a waqf that is basically a library, but it is a digital library. And it is mostly, waqf libraries existed before, but now it is really mostly this uh, institution rather than any physical uh, library with books. And it is, uh, you know, it works like a, like a non-governmental organization or a non-profit that gives CDs, for example, of these or DVDs or CDs of these books for the purpose of uh, spreading Islamic knowledge. 
what you're laying out here is a geography in which, I mean, I'm trying to pull out what things can be waqfs. Um, so we have religious buildings like mosques or churches, cemeteries. Uh, we have commercial buildings like the famous chocolate shop um, or one of the largest malls in Beirut. Um, we have waqfs as sort of endowments or institutions that belong to both Muslim um, and Christian communities. Um, but we also have the waqf as the location of what you called an act of charity. So there's something about it that's more than just the place or the building or the land. Can you say more about that? That is actually a great observation because waqf in Arabic comes uh, is both a verb and a noun. And it is in the lost law books uh, defined as a process. It's, a, it's, a, it's an act of doing charity to waqf as I use it in the book. But it also is used to talk about the endowed thing. So it is both the act of making this uh, act of charity as well as the building. So it is a process as well as a thing. The fact that the waqf is both the object and the process, and, and it's, it's mostly used to talk about the object, is something I encountered in the Sharia court archive. So in describing the limits of a type of property, they would tell you it's delimited on the Qibla or what is mostly here south. Which is the direction of Mecca, the direction of prayer. That's right. Um, it's delimited by the waqf shop or the waqf um, house. So it is very much still, even in the 19th century, very much used and has had become already very much used to talk about objects that are uh, endowed in perpetuity for a charitable purpose. The history of waqf in Beirut goes back to Ottoman times, but it looked a little different in this provincial city than in the imperial capital. In fact, I want to just say that there's two main kind of types of foundations in terms of size. So there is usually these very big foundations that were founded by sultans and their retinues and viziers, etc., that usually consist of a lot of kind of public works, if you think about it, like a mosque and an associated madrasa and an associated soup kitchen uh, and slews of properties endowed for them so they can support them and provide the salaries of teachers, the salaries of imams, etc., etc. That's, you know, the waqfs that you hear a lot about. But in a city like Beirut that was really very, very small up to the 19th century, you don't have these enormous sultanic uh, waqfs Instead, you have very small waqfs made by inhabitants of the city for their like small mosques and small zawiyas, Sufi lodges, uh, or for um, shop that distributes bread for the poor every Friday. So there's these very small endowments from people who are not necessarily very rich, but who are thinking about the hereafter. And they make these endowments for both these mosques and zawiyas and, uh, and for distributing bread for the poor. But they also do other ones that are for their families. So they, uh, to take care of their families, to make sure that their families have um, certain uh, properties uh, that give them income, 
Uh, it's also a form uh, of wealth management or inheritance kind of management uh, to think about uh, that property in um, a way to to kind of devolve it the way you want to while you're alive to your um, to your children and grandchildren. So giving to the family becomes um, a kind of of pious giving in a way. Absolutely, yeah, and I, that is, a, I think, a very important aspect of what I try to outline in the book, which is the importance of giving charity to the family, the the fact that um, care of the family is beyond a certain, you know, uh, requirement when it is done with the intent of getting close to God is something that counts as an act of sadaqah and doing good. So it's all about the intent with which one does certain acts of um, piety. And so in a way, what you're describing in the late Ottoman period is a world in which things that we now call things like, you know, inheritance or wealth management or trusts, you know, things that are, are thought about as ways of managing private wealth, right, family wealth, and the kind of broader discourses of um, charitable giving, of piety, um, of sort of communal support, of public support are not, are not differentiated as clearly from one another as they might be today. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on its head because it is in the other aspect of this equation is that even the mosques and the the imams and the all of these um, public, if you will, um, functions and ch- what you think of as charitable um, giving were also in the 19th century very much structured around the family. So an imam actually transmitted his position to his son as long as that son was um, uh, ha- had the qualifications, etc. So the logic of the family existed even in these um, public public functions or public, uh, buildings or all of these charitable public works, charitable foundations, etc. So that distinction between these are for the family and these are for the public, uh, in fact, were much more meshed. And the logic of the family was very much, I would say, kind of um, imbued all these different spheres differently. So is this something that started to change then? I mean, many of our listeners will be familiar with the the period of Ottoman reform called the Tanzimat, right? Which is often thought of as the moment of kind of the beginning of modern state building in the Ottoman Empire. I'm wondering if the Waqf actually shows us some of the central changes or processes that are going on in this, this era of late Ottoman reform. What happens to the Waqf during the Tanzimat, in other words? I don't want it to look like there was something that was, you know, pre-Tanzimat that was static and that was kind of, um, you know, this is pre-modern Islam or whatever, you know. And then there comes modernity and there's something completely different. State building is a project that is continuous and continuously changing and its shape changes and it's constantly challenged, etc. So I don't think that, I don't, I don't want to say that there is this kind of um, big rupture that is, you know, you have the pre and the after, even though I do talk about certain ruptures, but it's not, I don't consider them to be something that 
completely erases what was before. Despite these reservations, Neda did give us a sense of some of the new ways that people started to think about property, family, and time in the late 19th century Ottoman Empire. And the waqf, of course, holds the key. I use the waqf partly to look at a story of modernity, at what happens with the modern state, what happens in this kind of period of upheaval and big reform projects, etc. And partly, of course, the, I, I do see um, the rise of the modern state um, is very much articulated around economy and uh, wealth and progress. And, and that, to me, is what becomes really uh, important for the modern state project. I see it in the way the waqfs become approached and as wealth, as if you want to talk about it as real estate wealth, as part of that nation's economy that needs to be grown. And what you see is um, a, a change mostly in the administration of waqfs. And, and so, for example, in Beirut, most of these waqfs were basically administered by uh, local administrators who were chosen by founders or um, who were very much uh, inherited positions. And if there was no, uh, if that line died, then the Qadi would appoint one uh, from, you know, the, the city. And what starts happening in the 19th century is, for example, in 1850, there's a decree from the Ottoman center saying that, well, these waqfs are not well managed the administrators don't have really uh, deeds that confirm them as administrators. And so the state, the center basically attempts to make itself the administrator of these alqaf, uh, these waqfs, and basically centralize their revenues into the, an Ottoman, uh, into a waqf ministry rather than the monies being, you know, distributed in the city, etc. So this really seems like a big change that the waqf goes from being something that's um, adjudicated locally by a network of judges, family members, um, you know, local administrators, and then becomes something that's adjudicated at the level of the state by an official ministry. And not only that, but it's adjudicated by the state in the name of something called good management. So they're adopting a logic of sort of for the good of the population, um, we will take charge of these resources and centralize them. So the standard of good administration is a term that appears in this decree. And, um, and it is a term that is in the Tanzimat decrees, uh, and it is very much uh, a term that probably also exists in an, in a tradition of political theory and uh, mirror to princes. Uh, and I haven't had the chance to examine that transformation, but there is something that happens with it, and it becomes the logic of administering these waqfs. And what you start seeing is this ways of managing the waqfs, including creating uh, particular formats of registers, certain, certain kinds of administration. There's a process for everything that is unified. In Beirut, they have to send uh, quarterly or trimesterly, or you know, they change all the time. They're like experimenting. Of course, it's not something that comes and is just like 
clear they're trying and people sometimes do sometimes they don't you know it's it's a complicated process of trial and error but there is an attempt to actually try and claim all of these revenues of walks that in beirut and to subject them to a uniform standard of accounting of administration and this has been described a little bit by uh, by some studies of Wolf, but perhaps I try to think about it more in terms of the tying it more to governmental power and to ha- to how the modern state is uh, is thinking about wealth in in the wealth of the nation and uh, the attempt to to grow it and, and for it to be well managed. So these forms of charitable giving become a kind of laboratory for the modern, what you call the state effect, right? The the appearance of there being such a thing as a unified, standardizing, all-powerful state, which of course doesn't exist a priori, um, but comes into being precisely through these processes you're describing of bureaucratization, standardization, sending quarterly reports, um, and this kind of thing. It is you know, when you start to have an administrate, a wakf employee, a wakf memuru, and you have, uh, you know, a particular location. So when you start having these, then there, the state starts to take a certain shape, you know. I mean, of course, the, it, it did exist before. There was a qadi, but it was also, it's also a proliferation of such presences, as well as these processes of reporting uh, and and also sending money, etc., that make that state look much more real in people's lives. So I'm wondering then. Obviously, in Lebanon, in the aftermath of World War One, the Ottoman regime isn't falls, and the French mandatory government takes over. And historians have done considerable work, kind of figuring out change and continuity over that change in sovereignty. But I'm curious then, from the perspective of the Waqf. What happens to the Waqf under the French mandate? Uh, and how can this shed light on this question of sort of change in continuity from the Ottoman period? I mean, I take certain particularities of the modern state to be continuous. This idea of uh, economy, wealth, and progress is something I think is very much essential and core to the modern state and its uh, ways of, you know, uh, 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 and its existence, let's say. Uh, but then I talk about changes in what I call the architecture of um, the state and law and religion. And I think that is something that becomes quite different. So some people might call this, you know, sectarianism in Lebanon. Uh, but I find the term to have become like furtu and it just is, it, it, it is used to talk about so many different things that I think we lose some kind of uh, clarity about what it really means. And and I think that we need to kind of disentangle the different strands and kind of be specific about what we are talking about. And I'm particularly talking about um, what you might call, uh, you know, a secular configuration, the relationship of uh, the state and religion uh, and law. Of course, that changes tremendously because the Ottoman Empire, whether we want to think about them as... Um, Islamic or not, were very much based on, you know, the legal system, etc. Uh, the state was the guarantor of the Sharia, and that was kind of, uh, it's an Islamic state, uh, and it's supplemented, it's Sharia plus Siyasa or Sharia plus Qanun, and um, and both these can be framed as Islamic, as many have, have been saying. 
So the state itself um, is very much sees itself as an Islamic state, I would say. And that changes quite uh, tremendously under uh, the French mandate. Yes, of course, the, the French mandate government doesn't see itself as an Islamic state. I'm not a scholar of law, but I think that I can assert this without too much <laughs> too much pushback. Yeah, and so, you know, the the way, uh, you know, the the way that Lebanon is organized is as or thought of is as this kind of a country with all of these different communities and these communities have some legal sovereignty um, over what is becomes known as personal status law, which is uh, marriage, divorce, and what becomes this really complicated <laughs> in-between category? Is it really part of personal status? Yes, there's part of it that is about, you know, transmission of wealth, but it's also property. So it should also fo- follow uh, the civil laws of the country. So the Waqf jurisdiction becomes a place of big struggles. And until now, there's a lot of uh, negotiations around it and a lot of flu, uh, like uh, fuzziness, and there's a lot of uh, competing laws uh, around Waqf. And so at the same time, it's defined as inalienable. It's defined, you can also exchange it. It's, it's really complicated. So it sits right on the boundary, as you're describing, between this new division under the French, between the private religion, the family, and the public, um, the economic, the state. Absolutely, yes. And, and so it, it becomes then... It's, it becomes a very important space of contestation. Um, it becomes an important space for various Muslim groups to make, kind of make claims uh, on the state, as well as uh, there's something that happens, particularly when it's placed in the realm of the private, which is that the waqf become defined according to the, these French decrees that take over the administration of waqf that define it as the religious property of the Muslim community, which is a very, you know, interesting way of framing it, which was very different from the Ottomans' approach to it, because because it's defined as the religious property of the Muslim community, it's considered to follow its religious laws, and therefore it is, in terms of its foundation and uh, naming of administrators, etc., that falls under the, um, the religious courts. What happens at the same time, though, is that um, because now they become the religious property of the community, then they become tied to the community as a whole. And so they become Awqaf al-Muslimin, the Muslims walk for Awqaf al-Taifa, uh, Orthodox or, you know, uh, or Muarni or whoever. So the Waqfs become very much tied to these sects as their property. And it is not that, you know, m- Muslims didn't have, uh, there was no connection between property and uh, and community that definitely existed. Uh, but it was not one community among other communities in a nation state. <laughs> so that is, that becomes quite different. And and in addition to the fact that waqfs, you know, you couldn't do a waqf for the Muslims. That didn't exist. Scholars didn't consider that a valid waqf because the Muslims was too broad and uh, it was, um, a waqf has to end to a perpetual charitable purpose. 
and the Muslims will always include rich and poor, so you can do something as broad as this. So it has to be the poor. You can make the poor of the Muslims or the poors of Mecca and Medina or the poors of, you know, wherever you want, but it has to be something charitable. But in the older grammar of Waqf, the category of the Muslims didn't make sense as an object of charitable giving because, as you say, it was too broad. So it's under the French mandate that it becomes newly acceptable to identify the Muslims or the Orthodox as beneficiaries of Waqf. Yes, it is partly through the the bureaucratization and the creating of this Waqf ministry helps in that because it pools all of these Waqf's resources together in ways that you know, were not done in the Ottoman period in Beirut beforehand. It doesn't mean that, you know, I mean, in, in say, the Mamluk period, there was more of, say, uh, a waqf ministry as well. But there was not, you know, the, the logic of managing was very different because they were not drawn into this idea of progress, of economic wealth accumulation, and kind of you have to grow the nation's economy. That was not the framework people were thinking with. And there's tensions in that in 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 the Waqf legal manuals uh, about Waqf that Waqf is actually Waqf, which means the logic of it is it's to remain as it is as its founder made it um, versus kind of growing it. So there's all of enormous debates about whether you can exchange a Waqf that is you can exchange a Waqf for one that is more profitable if the original Waqf is still profitable. So. So there's a lot of debate about that. You have a really interesting phrase in the book where you, t- you talk about um, the waqf as, a, as an idea of charitable giving, and this is, these are your words, that delinks sustainability from progress. I'm wondering if that's partly what you're getting at here. I'm trying to talk a little bit to some debates about um, charity and development, and a lot of critiques of charitable giving are the fact that they are just band-aids, you know, they are just... Um, you know, they fix the problem, I give you food now, I give you bread now, but really the structural problems remain, you know. I'm not offering a solution to your not being able to feed yourself. These require thinking about poverty more broadly, the structures that create this inequality and uh, the reason why people cannot feed themselves or, you know, the reason for their poverty. So a lot of charitable giving has moved from these models of uh, give people a fish to give people teach people how to fish. You know that's kind of the the usual explanation given. And Munatia has written about that in Egypt, for example. And it is very much uh, that charity then becomes geared towards teaching the poor skills that help them improve their lives rather than just give them food or money or however they are receiving handouts, you know. And so the idea is usually that handouts are very much one-time donations that are not sustainable. However, what you find in WAFs is that actually, in fact, these are sustainable. WAFs are supposed to be perpetual and you are supposed to give you know, constantly from the, the revenues of the walks, they're supposed to be spent after being uh, used to, you know, uh, make sure that the walk is in good shape and it continues to be profitable. Uh, you don't want to let it, uh, you know, get into ruins. And so after these uh, necessary expenses are spent, then you then distribute the revenues. 
So in fact, wakfs are sustainable. What they are not doing, however, is attempting in that period, in the 19th century uh, in Beirut, they're not trying to find a solution to poverty because in these earlier ways of thinking about the world, poverty is something that exists in the world. It is not something that we eradicate. The poor will always be there. And so um, there's not this idea that eventually we will improve the world so that the poor will disappear forever. It also sounds like a way of meeting people's needs in the present without worrying about their, how do I put this, their deservingness, right? In that they're engaging with forms of life that are deemed by the NGO to be likely to teach them how to fish, right? It's a way of saying needs exist, we meet the needs, and we do so in a sustainable way that isn't about accumulating wealth, becoming wealthier and wealthier, like a university endowment, right? (laughs) But is about distributing wealth in perpetuity. And maybe there's something interesting to think with for folks who are engaged in working on on development um, or humanitarianism and these kinds of things. Yes, I mean, that is totally the case. Um, I mean, you know, it's a very difficult position to kind of... Um, I find it like, you know, as somebody who's very committed to social justice, it's very hard to kind of say like, yeah, I don't want to think about, you know, the future. But I think... Um, as you put it, it, it is true that it the question of deservingness and kind of the poor having to perform, you know, their poverty and their that the fact that they're d- deserving poor, they're doing everything they can to get out of poverty. That is not something that is a question within the wakf grammar framework. Within the wakf, yeah, yeah. Even though, I mean, of course, uh, you have to be poor. I mean, that's kind of the thing. <laughs> A wonderful book on on this particular question is uh, my colleague Amira Mettermeyer's book, um, Giving to God. And she actually does the amazing work to show that these, um, that form of charitable giving of handouts, there is something quite, uh, perhaps you want to say maybe revolutionary (laughs) in it, in the sense that, as you say, like, yeah, it is not linked to that future constantly. It is also, uh, at the end, there are needs that are met and that need to be met. And it doesn't mean that you, you know, other, you can't do these two things at the same time is what I would say. You know, you can address causes of poverty and at the same time address uh, immediate needs. I'm also thinking that if we think with, you know, critiques of progress and accumulation, that these are the ideologies of colonialism and capitalism in the 20th century and before. And so it might be worth trying to think of modes of redistribution that swim against the current of those two logics, that you always have to be moving forward, that you always have to be growing. And that maybe the walk actually provides an interesting site for thinking about a rhetoric of social justice that looks a bit different from those grammars. That's a very interesting question because wakfs are such a part of the real estate market and they are very much imbricated in these kind of, you know, they want to have income at the end, otherwise they won't have anything to be, to distribute. So they are at the same time part of these capitalist kind of logics. But what happens is what you do with that money. And that's where they are very much about redistribution rather than accumulation. So whether while they participate in 
some processes of dispossession it has happened in Solidaire, you know getting rid of these tenants um, that had stabilized rents uh, they they benefited from these enormous rents that Solidaire, which is the kind of reconstruction project uh, in the city center of Beirut after the war of 1975 to 1990. Basically, um, the WAFs participated in this project of, uh, you know, accumulation by this you might call it. Uh, but they also are doing something else, which is they're redistributing money for in, in other ways. So, yeah, so it's kind of this, it has this weird tension, again, tension. It, it's in, in, in between it. It is not just this kind of, you know, this is, well, I'm not talking about these are not alternatives to capitalism that exist separately from it. It is something that very much is implicated um, and, and it's part of this capitalist um, society we live in today. We could just close by talking a little bit about the scene that you sketch in the conclusion, which is um, in which you talk about being in Beirut in the context of Lebanon's 29th, fall 2019 revolution and seeing a graffiti spray painted on one of Beirut's most prominent mosques, which said tax the Al-Qaf or tax the Waqfs, <laughs> kind of like how people say tax the rich right in the United States. Um, so this really stuck out to me. I mean, this is sort of strange for someone coming from Ottoman history because walks usually think of as like soup kitchens and schools and you're sort of like, wait, <laughs> why tax the walks? So I'm curious if you could just say a little bit more about what you made of that demand um, and, and how this can kind of tie into these questions about, you know, what the role is of walk in today's Beirut. Seeing that tax the walks was like, Oh, I mean, you know, waqfs, everybody knows about them in Beirut. People know Al-Qaf, but nobody really knows about them. You know, it's one of these things that are just very present, but not really understood. And it was very surprising to me to see um, the graffiti that was actually, ta- uh, it was sprayed not only on the main, uh, the biggest mosque in the city center, but also on next to it on the Maronite church as well. <laughs> So it was very much uh, targeted to both communities. So it, to me, uh, it, it has, I think you can read it in so many different ways, of course. Uh, part of the debate for these questions of the church is the fact that um, they are serving a section of the public. But uh, the problem with that is that it, in some ways it's the state delegating to these private institutions, them providing certain public goods. Um, and those who vote don't get kind of the chance to decide what counts as the public good. So in some ways, this is a call for kind of a return to a certain degree to much more of a welfare state that provides for its citizens. So it is not, you know, you you tax these religious institutions, say religious institutions shouldn't be given uh, tax deductions for their schools. In fact, we should tax them, take that money and make that money available for the public to build public schools that will then produce citizens based on the way we imagine the nation rather than leaving it to particular uh, groups to decide. And, and so, of course, it has different visions 
of what is the state and the idea of the fact that we can have a nation. You know, there's like all of these ideas of uh, we, we want to build a nation. And I would say sometimes it puts too much hope in the state as if it is something that's necessarily good. But it's uh, also something that is desired. You know, when Daule, you know, there's a bunch of books, of course, on Lebanon that just address this question of the desire for the state. But on the other hand, I think the state can also be you know, oppressive. And so having also the possibility of other players might be important. So I think that's a, it's a difficult question um, and vision of the place of the state and, and, and if you want to call it civil society, you know, and, and these religious institutions. And there's, of course, a particular, you know, we're speaking from a particular context, which is Lebanon, which where people feel very much that religious institutions have a lot of power. And there's this very big kind of uh, symbiosis between a lot of the religious and the political elites. In a way, politically, there is an important intervention being done there. Uh, but I also think there that if we think about it in a more kind of uh, rounded picture, I think there's more complexity to the story than just that. In this episode, we've gone on a journey with Neda Mumtaz and the institution, the act, and the theory of the waqf. We've gone from the late Ottoman state, which turned to waqf to claim and demonstrate good governance, to the French mandate period where the waqf is really at the center of a new character in Lebanese history, the idea or character of the sect, i.e. the Orthodox or the Muslims. And then what we're ending with here in the post-independence period and then, you know, up to 2019 is this, again, the waqf is really on the borderline between what's religious and what's political, what's public and what's private and who decides. And it seems like its reappearance in the 2019 revolution in this kind of graffiti that you saw is really reminding us that these questions about ownership, about charitable giving and about who's responsible for the public's well-being um, are really still very present in Beirut. I mean, the thing that I also wanted to say that is very important is that changes is the fact that the state used to care about its citizens or subjects um, afterlives, you know, the Ottomans, you know, that is something that was really important, but today it doesn't matter. So, for example, in getting tax exemptions in the states, there's all of these interesting cases you know, the church is supposed to be rendering a certain public uh, good because, you know, it, it provides spaces for worship and people can come to mass and they are edified religiously. The big question happens when there's nun a nunnery where it's cloistered nuns that make prayers for, you know, the faithful. And so that is not considered public good. <laughs> Because, you know, these prayers, we don't really know. I mean, the public, is it really benefiting? So, so yeah, I mean, you know, if you can be religiously edified because religion is good, because, you know, you don't steal and you don't, you know, so there's all of these ways that religion is worldly, that matters. But if you're going to make prayers for their sins to be forgiven, the state is not really wanting to fund that. <laughs> because yeah, that's not really... No longer considered part of the public good. Yes, exactly. Well, I have to say, after reading your book, Nada, I will never think about this category of the public good the same the same way again, <laughs> in any context, in Beirut or otherwise. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Susie, for having me and for these great questions. Um, it was really fun. 
For those who want to find out more, keep your eyes peeled for Netta's forthcoming book, God's Property, Islam, Charity, and the Modern State, about to come out from University of California Press. As always, you can also check out the bibliography for this episode on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. And please also feel free to join us on Facebook, where we stay in touch with our community of over 35,000 listeners and post news about upcoming series and episodes. That's all for this time. Take care.